Welcome, everyone. This is the Council of Institutional Investors Educational Podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. On this episode, we'll hear an expert legal analysis of the investor implications of the United States Supreme Court's recent decision in West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency, followed by an investor-oriented preview of the court's 2022-2023 term. Our special guest is Robert K. Cry, a founding partner of the law firm of Molo Lampkin, LLP. Mr. Cry represents clients before the United States Supreme Court, has authored more than 40 Supreme Court briefs, and served as a law clerk to Justice Antonin Scalia. Welcome back, Mr. Cry. Thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me back, Jeff. Mr. Cry, before we look ahead to the U.S. Supreme Court's new term, let's first take a look back at the current term and the court's controversial ruling in June in the case of West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency. Can you explain to our listeners what this case is all about and why so many investors are concerned about the implications of this decision and future rulemaking of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission? Sure, Jeff. West Virginia was a case about the EPA's authority on climate change. It's an important decision for institutional investors, both on climate change specifically and on agency rulemaking more broadly. The dispute arose several years ago when the EPA issued a rule known as the Clean Power Plan. That rule required states to shift their power generation resources away from high emission sources like coal toward cleaner sources like natural gas, wind, and solar. The EPA relied on a section of the Clean Air Act that authorized the agency to prescribe emission limits based on the best system of emission reduction available. In the past, the agency had used that provision to impose plant-specific controls, such as scrubbers or filtration systems. The Clean Power Plan went beyond that approach by interpreting the phrase best system of emission reduction to include shifts in a state's overall power grid. The Supreme Court held that the Clean Air Act, as currently written, did not authorize that plan. It relied on something called the Major Questions Doctrine. Under that doctrine, where an agency issues a rule with an unusually broad impact, it needs a clear statutory basis to do so. The theory is that Congress would not authorize agencies to make far-reaching policy decisions without clear directions. The Clean Power Plan triggered that major questions doctrine because the agency, for the first time, was trying to reduce emissions by shifting generation across a state's entire power grid rather than improving controls at the plant level. The court held that the statutory phrase, best systems of admission reduction, did not clearly authorize that approach. That decision is important to institutional investors for a couple reasons. For one thing, climate change for years has been a priority for institutional investors, many of whom see it as a serious risk to long-term shareholder value. Institutional investors have often used shareholder proposals to improve transparency on emissions. And last year, as you'll recall, Investors succeeded in electing three dissident directors at ExxonMobil over concerns about the company's climate strategy. By limiting the EPA's authority, the court's ruling increases the importance of those shareholder initiatives. But West Virginia has even more significant implications for agency rulemaking generally. 
Traditionally, under the Chevron Doctrine, courts deferred to an agency's reasonable construction of an ambiguous statute. West Virginia signals that the court will be more skeptical where an agency adopts broad rules on important topics. The Major Questions Doctrine applies to the Securities and Exchange Commission, just like any other agency. Over the years, the SEC has issued far-reaching rules on a number of important topics, from dual-class shares to independent directors to proxy access. One could easily imagine a court applying the major questions doctrine to any of those rules. Now, as it happens, courts set aside all the rules I just mentioned on other grounds. But the major questions doctrine will be one more obstacle to broad agency rulemaking. After West Virginia, the SEC will find it harder to effect major policy changes through rulemaking in a way that survives judicial review. One source of contention under the major questions doctrine is that whether a question counts as major or not is often in the eye of the beholder. In West Virginia, for example, defenders of the EPA's rule argued that generation shifting was a straightforward application of the EPA's broad authority over air pollution. The Supreme Court disagreed, seeing a fundamental difference between regulating emission controls at the plant level and shifting generation resources across an entire power grid. SEC rules could provoke similar disputes. For example, right now the SEC is considering a new rule mandating climate disclosures, including information about emissions and climate-related risks to a company's business. There may well be a dispute over whether that rule triggers the major questions doctrine. Many institutional investors consider the rule an unexceptional exercise of the SEC's authority to require disclosure of information relevant to shareholder value. After all, if a company is valuing assets in a way that ignores the future impact of energy transition, many investors want to know that. Opponents, however, argue that climate disclosures focus primarily on non-financial topics beyond the SEC's traditional domain. Whether a court views the SEC's climate rule as a major question depends in large part on what perspective a court adopts. To take one more example, NASDAQ has a new rule on board member diversity disclosure that's now working its way through the courts. That rule might implicate a major question too. On one view, the exchange is merely requiring disclosure of something that many investors consider relevant to shareholder value, but others see the exchange as wading into social policy. Now, this particular dispute gets even more complicated because this rule is a NASDAQ exchange rule. The SEC had to sign off on the rule, but the agency did not promulgate the rule in the first instance. So whether the major questions doctrine even applies in this context is pretty doubtful and an issue that courts will have to sort out. One thing, though, is clear. The Supreme Court is concerned about agencies making important policy decisions that, in its view, should be made by elected representatives instead. West Virginia will have a major impact on SEC rulemaking for years to come. Mr. Cry, now let's take a look forward to the new term of the court beginning on October 3rd. In your opinion, what case on the Supreme Court's docket do you predict will have the biggest impact on investors? Jeff, this could be a blockbuster term for the SEC's enforcement powers. On November 7th, the court will hear argument in a case called SEC versus Cochrane. The question in that case is whether parties to ongoing SEC enforcement proceedings at the agency can sue the commission in federal court. 
By way of background, the SEC enforces the securities laws in two main ways. It can bring civil enforcement actions in federal court, or it can bring administrative proceedings before its own agency tribunals. Historically, that latter process was used for limited purposes, like disciplining registered securities professionals. But over the years, Congress has expanded the SEC's in-house jurisdiction and expanded the remedies it can seek. The SEC has responded by greatly increasing the portion of cases that it brings in-house. Many complain about the fairness of those proceedings. They argue that the agency is exploiting a home court advantage by acting as both prosecutor and judge in a forum that lacks the structure and procedural protections of federal court. Parties to those proceedings often want to challenge the powers the agency is exercising. According to the government, defendants must wait until the case ends and then seek judicial review. But agency proceedings can take years and many defendants complain that requiring them to wait effectively insulates their challenges from review because they have no choice but to settle rather than endure years of litigation before the agency itself. Despite those arguments, most courts have historically sided with the government on this issue, holding that parties to ongoing administrative proceedings must wait until the end of the case to seek judicial review. In Cochrane, however, the Fifth Circuit bucked that trend. In that case, the SEC brought in-house proceedings against an accountant who allegedly did shoddy audits of public companies. The accountant responded by suing the agency in federal court, complaining that the administrative law judge presiding over her case was insulated from removal. The Fifth Circuit allowed that lawsuit to proceed despite the ongoing agency proceeding. If the Supreme Court agrees with the Fifth Circuit, that decision could throw a serious wrench into the SEC's enforcement program. The decision would embolden other defendants to derail ongoing proceedings by suing in court, even though the agency proceedings are still ongoing. In the Cochrane case, the Fifth Circuit did not address the merits of the constitutional challenge. But there's another case on the horizon that could be an even bigger blockbuster for the SEC's enforcement powers. In a case called Jarkesi versus SEC, the Fifth Circuit found three constitutional flaws with the SEC's in-house enforcement scheme. It held that the proceedings violated the Seventh Amendment by denying respondents the right to a jury trial. It held that the securities laws delegated too much power to the SEC by allowing it to pick whether to bring claims in court or at the agency. And it held that the statute impermissibly restricted removal of administrative law judges, the same claim that's at issue on the merits in Cochrane. As of this taping, Jarkasi is still at the Fifth Circuit on a petition for a hearing on Bonk. But whichever side loses is sure to seek Supreme Court review. Between Cochrane and Jarkasi, the SEC could be in for a rough ride facing two very high-stakes challenges to its enforcement program. Mr. Cry, final question. Are there any investor-related issues you see as likely to come before the court over the longer term? What types of cases should investors be on the lookout for? So there are indeed. You may remember a case from a couple years ago called Collins versus Yellen that arose out of the government's conservatorship of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Turns out that dispute may soon be back in front of the court for a second round. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are government-sponsored enterprises that purchase mortgages and securitize them to promote liquidity in mortgage markets. For many years, both entities have been publicly traded companies owned by shareholders. When the housing crisis hit in 2008, 
the companies suffered catastrophic losses and were on the brink of collapse. The Federal Housing Finance Agency stepped in as conservator for the entities, and the Treasury Department provided financing in return for fixed dividend payments. Four years later, those agencies replaced the fixed dividends with an arrangement known as the net worth sweep. Every quarter, Fannie and Freddie would hand over essentially all their earnings to the government. As the housing market improved, that arrangement turned out to be a great deal for Treasury. The government received far more money under the net worth sweep than it would have under the old fixed dividend payments. Fannie and Freddie's shareholders sued, claiming that the net worth sweep was tantamount to nationalizing the two entities because the government had essentially expropriated all their earnings indefinitely, leaving nothing for shareholders. That dispute reached the Supreme Court two years ago in a case called Collins v. Yellen. In that case, the court held that the Federal Housing Finance Agency did have the power, as conservator, to agree to the net worth sweep. Even though the arrangement may not have been in the best interests of shareholders of Fannie and Freddie, the statute permitted the agency to consider the public interest as well. And according to the court, the net worth sweep could benefit the public by stabilizing mortgage markets. Now, since then, Fannie and Freddie shareholders have not given up. They are now arguing that even if the Federal Housing Finance Agency had statutory authority to agree to the net worth sweep, shareholders are entitled to compensation under the Fifth Amendment's takings clause. That clause provides that the government may not take private property for public use unless it pays just compensation. The shareholders sued in federal claims court demanding compensation for the property that the Federal Housing Finance Agency and the Treasury Department expropriated. The Federal Circuit rejected those claims. First, it held that the shareholders lacked standing to assert the claims directly because the claims were derivative rather than direct. In that court's view, the shareholders were essentially complaining that Fannie and Freddie had made a bad deal with Treasury when their conservator agreed to the net worth sweep. That was an injury to the corporations, not their shareholders. And second, the Federal Circuit held that the claims failed even as derivative claims. Once Congress empowered the Federal Housing Finance Agency to put Fannie and Freddie into conservatorship, court reasoned, the entities lacked any protectable property rights. The conservator, by statute, had very broad powers to manage the entities for the public benefit. So in the court's view, the entities no longer had the right to exclude the government from their property, including their future earnings. Over the summer, the shareholders filed multiple petitions for Supreme Court review of this latest decision. The court will decide whether to hear this new round of cases later this term. But the Federal Circuit's decision raises obvious concerns for investors. The holding that an agency can put a company into conservatorship, appropriate its future earnings, and then deny shareholders any compensation, needless to say, is not a high watermark for shareholder property rights the Supreme Court may well be willing to give this case a second look. That concludes this podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank our special guest, Robert K. Pride of the law firm of Molo Lampkin, LLP. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening.
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.